Well, good evening, you guys. I am so excited to be with you guys this evening in this capacity. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alex. For those of you who do know me, you might be used to seeing me pop up on stage every once in a while to host or share announcements. Um, but I'm really excited and honored to be able to share what I feel like the Lord has put on my heart to share with us as a church in this season here at Coastal. So we're going to jump into Romans 12 here in a bit. But before that, I thought that maybe we could get to know each other a little bit better. How does that sound? Are you sure about that? <laughs> Is the <it> sound okay? <laughs> How does it sound? Okay. Okay. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a huge fan of moments in my life that involved uh, that involved transition or a shift or change. It's not really my favorite, um, mostly because it's just unpredictable. I just don't like unpredictability. I like reliable and steadfast. Those words are my favorite because to me they represent the ideal the ideal best friends, the, the ideal situations in life, the ideal seasons. Um, so I'm just a really huge fan of consistency, admittedly, probably to a fault. Even when I hear words like transformation, I kind of shudder a little bit because I'm like, oh, there's a lot involved in that and it doesn't really sound like a whole lot of fun. And if I can be honest with you guys, um, over the past year, the Lord has really been showing me how he can choose, to, he can use things that are unpredictable, or he can use things that are a little bit messy, or he can use things that aren't predictable um, to really show himself to me and really show up in a new way that I would have never imagined. And if I'm being really honest, the Lord has been showing me how um, my lack of humility to trust his plan sometimes gets in the way of me being able to step into the fullness of what he's called me to. Um, and that's on me. That's my fault. So my question for us tonight is, what does transformation look like? What does a transformed life look like? If it's your first week with us tracking our way through Romans, we've been working through the book of Romans for a bit. Um, but if it is your first time, I'll give you a little bit of a teaser in what we've covered. So, so far in the book of Romans, we're starting in chapter 12 tonight. Um, but the book of Romans was actually a letter written to Paul to the church in Rome. And he's taken what we've divided into chapters, 11 of them, to explain a whole bunch of theology, a whole lot of thought. So now that he's unpacked a whole bunch of theology, the church at the time, and frankly us, are wondering a little bit, so what are we supposed to do about all this? What does this mean? So now, starting in chapter 12, Paul is going to explain and get into how all this information or theology is supposed to actually impact and transform the way that we live. And I like chapter 12 because I believe that it's super clear um, the ways that it can be applied to our lives even now here in 2022. And that the chapter, chapter 12 in Romans actually begins with the idea of us being, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So I'm going to start us off um, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this is what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
So what does this mean for us today? What does it mean to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? And how does someone who is being transformed by the renewal of their mind live and act differently than the world around them? I think the answer to that very question is actually found at the opposite end of chapter 12 at the end. Um, and it is found in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And it says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a big chunk. How are we doing? Feeling good? Feeling good. Okay. So looking at this passage, taking it at face value, it looks like, and it kind of is, just a list of the ways that we're supposed to interact with one another as believers. But when I took time this week to look at this passage from a bunch of different angles, I couldn't help but notice that there's a key to transformation that ties a lot of this passage together. And I believe it's humility. So another question, what is humility? The Webster Dictionary simply defines humility as freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. Humility is often characterized as genuine gratitude or a lack of arrogance, even a modest view of oneself. However, a biblical view of humility actually goes beyond this. A biblical view of humility isn't just thinking, I'm not the best. It's actually a little bit deeper. Humility isn't just the opposite of pride. And as we unpack chapter 12 together, I think that you guys will be able to see that humility is a little bit more than just not thinking that I'm the best. Humility is actually more than, of a heart posture than anything else. But I also want to be careful here. I don't want to misrepresent humility. Um, humility isn't the same thing as insecurity. Humility isn't thinking, oh, I'm the worst. I have nothing to offer. That's not what I'm getting at. I don't want us to feel as though we have nothing to offer because we do. To be humble, we don't need to think that we don't have anything to offer. Humility and insecurity aren't the same thing. I really want us to remember that tonight. I think it's important for us to know that we can both be humble and be secure in who the Lord has called us to be at the same time. So then, another question. What does Romans 12 teach us about humility? So I'm going to look at this. We're going to look at this passage tonight through three statements or three sentences that I feel like really will give us a good glimpse of what humility is and what a transformed life actually looks like. So my first thought is, humility is letting love be genuine. Can we say that together? Humility is letting love be genuine. Awesome. <laughs> so Romans 12 verse 9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
It's another question. I'm full of questions tonight. What does it mean to let love be genuine? In Greek, it actually, for love to be genuine, genuine means without hypocrisy and in all sincerity. So simply put, letting our love be genuine is letting nothing else get in the way of our love. Letting our love be genuine means that we're not letting jealousy or frustration or anger or hurt get in the way of how we love. Love was once described as this, and I won't tell you who it was that said this, but they are smart. They said, love must never be used as a disguise for ulterior aims. True love is free from all pretense and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy corrupts our love when we're more concerned about what we can get from love than what we are giving. Hypocrisy corrupts our love when we're dishonest or we love for our own personal gain. You see, church, coastal, we're all commanded to love, but the challenge for us here today is to be able to love with pure motive. Loving people in all sincerity, loving people genuinely, um, that happens when we're being transformed to become more and more like Christ. When we love like Christ, we're able to put aside disagreements or frustrations and love anyways, because that's what he would do. So my first thought is that humility is letting love be genuine. My second thought is humility is rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. I get this from Romans 12, 15 that says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I love this verse. It's one of my favorites in like the whole book of Romans because I feel as though it paints a really beautiful picture of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I feel like it paints a really beautiful picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of the family of God. But what does it actually mean? Like when we actually say, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Does it just mean that we cry all the time or does it mean that we just celebrate all the time? What does it actually mean? You see, when we're a part of the family of God, the joys and the wins of the people around us become ours. We take them on and we celebrate with them. Likewise, when the people around us are mourning, when they're lamenting, when they're grieving, those also become our things to bury because they're a part of the family, the family of God. I heard um, the Christian experience described as this this week. Someone said, the Christian experience is not just one person against the world, but it's one great family living out together with a mandate to care for one another. So because of this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I think it can be easy sometimes to react like the people around us, but when it gets tricky um, is when we don't know the people well or they don't think exactly the way that we do. But before I get into that a little bit, my question for us here tonight is, are we, am I, willing to weep with those who weep even when I'm celebrating what they're lamenting? Am I willing to weep with those who weep even when they're celebrating what I'm when, even when I'm celebrating what they are lamenting. So rejoicing and weeping can become our response. It is possible to let those things become our response instead of jealousy or anger, but it is one of the more difficult parts of the Lord's transforming work because the huge frustration or fumble in this area is, this is when we really begin to realize or unpack that it can't be about me all the time and the kingdom of God. One has to take priority over the other. So the question I've been asking myself is, who am I going to let take priority over the other? Myself, Alex, or the kingdom of God? So my first thought is that humility is letting love be genuine. 
My second thought for us tonight is humility is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And my third and final point is humility is living in peace with the people around us. So Romans 12, 18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a really beautiful communal aspect to humility. Humility is necessary if we want to do life with people well, if we want to have good, well-rounded relationships and live in community with the people that the Lord's given us to do life with. However, I want us to not forget that there's a huge tension. When Paul was reading, when he was writing this letter to the Romans, there was a huge tension in the church. There was an argument happening between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews who were used to doing the things that they wanted to do when they wanted to do it and how they had always done it, and then the Gentiles, who are everybody else, who had new experiences, new thoughts, um, and new things that they wanted to share. And the tension, the arguments that were happening, weren't about the little things, like the carpet or the color of the walls or even the songs that they sang. They were about huge things, like theology like the big things that we all need to agree on. They had different views and experiences about the big things. So Paul wrote to them, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Living in peace with the people around us is actually something that we need to learn how to do. It's okay if it doesn't feel like it comes easy all the time. And I think often not being able to live in peace with the people around us is a result of not fully seeing eye to eye. So, my favorite Blue Jays fans out there tonight, I know that it can be really frustrating or unbelievable to think that someone could waste their life and their days cheering for another team. I know it's hard to fathom, but I do want us to remember, if someone walks in here next week with a Red Sox hat, we need to live peaceably with them. We need to hold it together. Because... Blue Jays fans, living in peace doesn't mean that we always agree all the time. It means that we're walking in humility enough to consider our differences and love each other like Christ would love regardless. So you can still love your team. Just make sure that you're not too harsh with the people who aren't cheering for the same team. But when it comes to bigger issues, the things that we're not willing to back down on, the things that we feel as though are non-negotiables, can we still live in peace with the people around us even when we don't agree? I think we can. I think that the real challenge and call to humility here for all of us, including myself, is am I willing to live in peace with the people around me because I realize it's actually not my job to be right, it's God's? Are we willing to live in peace with the people around us because we realize it's actually not our job to be right, it's God's? That's been a tough one for me this week. I think the interesting thing about humility is that you can find it on both sides of the transformation process. It takes humility to accept and acknowledge that you need to experience the transforming power of Christ. But we also experience humility in its fullness as fruit or the product of the transformation process. We're about to jump back into worship here before James comes and presents us with a little, presents us with a little bit of the solution here. But you may be feeling a little bit of a tension and that's okay. I've been feeling it all week. It's been a heavy week. Because the tension happens and we realize that there's a tension here when we realize that God might actually have us, might actually have me live in a different way than I am. We realize that there's tension in this passage in Romans when we realize that transformation begins when we consider that God might have us live in a different way than we are. 
We're gonna get ready to jump into worship, but I wanna leave us all with three questions. Three questions to think about as we worship. Three questions to invite the Lord into. And these are the three questions. One, are we, am I, willing to consider what it would look like to sit with people as they rejoice, as they weep, even if I'm not feeling the same way as them? The second thought is, am I willing to consider what it looks like to live peaceably with the people that don't think the same way that I do? And my last question for us tonight is, Am I willing to consider that my love might not always be genuine? Am I willing to consider that there might actually be a work that the Lord needs to do in the way that I love the people around me? So why don't you stand as we pray and get ready to worship together. God, tonight we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the ways that it can both be encouraging and challenging. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit and the way that you show up and move us towards action. And God, I just pray that you would continue to move us all tonight. God, I pray that you would do a new thing, um, that you would remind us that there's no part of our life that you don't wanna be a part of, you don't wanna be in, you wanna be in all of it. So God, help us to um, posture our hearts to receive any word or thought or action that you may have for us tonight. God, we love you in your name, amen. Cash debit check. There we are. <laughs> How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Uh, didn't Alex do an awesome job? <laughs> Let's give it up for her. If I'm being honest, though, probably a little too good of a job because I, 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 I at least I know that I found that very convicting because if I'm honest with myself, that picture of humility that she presented, I'm not there yet. <laughs> Anybody else in the room feeling that tonight? I am not there yet. Well, I have good news for you tonight. Tonight we're talking about, Alex talked about the end goal, where we're trying to get. I'm here to talk to you tonight about how do we actually get there? How are we transformed into people of humility? You know, we as Christians are supposed to be defined by our humility, but that's a process. It's a process to get there. And the first step on that transformation journey is actually having the humility to admit that we need to be transformed. It takes humility to admit that I don't have it all together. It takes humility to admit that actually maybe God has a, an idea and a version of my life that's way better than the idea and the plans that I have for my life. So how do we get our life changed? How do we get transformed? How do we actually start walking in this radical love and humility that Jesus calls us to? Well, the answer is in Romans 12, back at the beginning. We're going all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Pause. But mercies of God is the term that Paul uses to summarize everything that he's talked about up until this point. That is um, Paul's catch-all term for this, the story of salvation, which he just spent the last 11 chapters laying out. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This passage teaches us that the key to a transformed life actually starts in the mind. It's the renewal of our minds. The direction of our lives is determined by our thoughts. What you think about determines where your life goes. How we act is determined by what we think about, what we dwell on. Every action starts with a thought. So it follows that if we want to be turned into people of love and humility, if we want to experience life and life abundantly, then we need the Holy Spirit to actually change how we think. Here's the problem, though. That is much easier said than done. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Why is that? Well, let's look at verse 2. Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world. And that's because our default position is actually in conformity to the world. There are either people who are being conformed and people who, or people who are being transformed. Conformity to the world simply means that if we don't let the Holy Spirit come in and change us, the world actually takes us and shapes us into selfish, unloving, unhumble, prideful people. The difference between someone who is being conformed and someone who is being transformed is entirely in what they think about, what they dwell on, what goes on in their mind. Are you dwelling on truth or have you been believing lies? If you want to be transformed, then we simply can't keep thinking the way that we have been. We can't think the way our old self used to. We are transformed into new people. Christ takes us and changes us into new people, but we can't think the same way that we used to. But if we're honest, it's super easy for those old thought patterns to sneak right in. This is kind of what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe this is just me, but has anybody else ever had those moments where you get those thoughts that just pop into your head and you have no idea where they come from? Those intrusive thoughts that just sneak in? You'll, you know, you'll be getting ready in the morning, brushing your teeth, looking in the mirror, and all of a sudden, this little voice pops into your head and says, you're worthless. Or you're going about your day, um, sitting at your desk, getting some work done, and then all of a sudden... You're reminded of that thing you did years and years ago that you're still ashamed of. Does that happen to anybody else? Is that just me? My friends, you need to know that there are thoughts in your head that don't come from you. I'm going to say that again because a lot of you don't believe that. There are thoughts in your head that don't come from you. You are not a bad Christian if you struggle with those thoughts. You are not a bad Christian if you are tempted. You are not a bad Christian if these things pop into your head. Renewing our minds, transformation is all about what do I do with those thoughts when they pop into your head, not about not ever having those thoughts. So, what do we do with those lies that swirl around in our head and in the world around us? Well, we go to war with them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, 
We are not waging a war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The only antidote for lies is the truth. So if we want to win this war in our minds, if we want to be able to combat these lies with the truth, then we need to be saturated in the truth. How can I expect to have my mind transformed if I'm not constantly saturating myself in the truth, if I'm not in the word, if I'm not in prayer and listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, if I'm not surrounding myself with a loving community who speaks to me louder than the world around me does and reminds me what's true. How can we wage war against lies if we are not saturated in the truth? We need to be surrounded by truth in order to be able to take those thoughts captive, to have something to fight against them with. In the fourth century, there was a monk named Evagrius Ponticus. Great name. Anybody having kids? That should be at the top of your list. I think we got a, oh, there's a picture of him there. Look at that beard. We should bring that look back. He's a really cool guy because... He wrote a book with one of the most metal titles ever, and this was the 4th century, okay? We're talking like 300 uh, AD. His book is called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. That's pretty metal. <laughs> the whole point of this book was describing this process based off of um, how Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4, how to actually combat the lies that would pop into Evagrius's head. How did he battle lies with the truth? And Comer broke down Evagrius's approach into these three questions, and I want to walk you through these today. Question number one is, what is the thought, feeling, or sensation? What, what, what is the actual thought that comes in your head. It's really important to be able to label these things because that's where the process starts. We actually need to be able to recognize what, what is going on in my head, in my heart, in my body in order to be able to then combat it. The second question is what's the lie beneath that thought, feeling, or sensation that reveals your attachment? Usually it's not just the thought itself, but there's actually uh, a lie that we've been believing in behind it that, that manifests itself in those thoughts or those feelings. And then Evagrius' third question was, and this is the most important piece, what is the truth? What is the truth that actually combats that lie that I've been believing? And so by walking through that process of answering those three simple questions, that is how we renew our minds. So for example, a thought or a feeling that might pop into your head might be that, you know, people don't actually like me. They just hang around me out of obligation. What's the lie behind that? Well, the lie behind that could be that my value comes from the approval of others and that I'm not actually worthy of their approval, so any approval they give me must be from pity. But that's not true. 
the truth to combat that lie that we've been believing is that God delights in you. He desperately wants to spend time with you, and he is the one who gives you value. See the process there? Another thought might be, I'll never move beyond the sin of my parents. I just keep making the same mistakes that they did, and my kids are going to turn out even worse than me. What's the lie behind that? The lie is that my value is determined by my family of origin. I'm caught up in sin that I inherited, and I cannot overcome it. But what's the truth? The truth is that Jesus conquered sin. The curse has been broken. Your past and the sin that you've inherited doesn't have to become a cycle. God wants to bring you into a new family of love and hope and peace. Or another example might be someone who feels so lonely and feels like nobody understands what they're going through. What's the lie behind that feeling? The lie is that I cannot trust God or other people with the depths of my heart because they might let me down and that vulnerability is too scary. But the truth is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and he knows your pain and what you're going through far better than even you do. And that we can actually trust him and that he actually calls us to live in a tight-knit community with other believers who we can share the depths of our heart with. You know, there are so many examples that I could have given, and and maybe none of those three actually resonated with you, but I really want to encourage you to go through that process yourself of identifying the, the, the stuff that's going on in your head, the lies that are behind it, and actually going through the process of searching the scriptures to find out what is the truth and, and equipping yourself with that to be able to combat these lies, to renew our minds and break down strongholds. Now, if you're a bit skeptical of all this, if it sounds a little bit too much like self-help or spiritual mumbo-jumbo, don't worry. Psychology actually teaches us the same thing. A lot of these principles are actually derived from psychology. And so when God and science are saying the same thing, I know that's that, crazy, but God and, when God and science say the same thing, we need to pay attention to it. You know, physiologically speaking, thoughts are simply just neurons firing. And so when that same neuron fires over and over and over again, something called a neural pathway is formed. To illustrate a neural pathway, I know you guys have never experienced this on our beautiful roads on the South Shore, but have you ever been driving down the highway and you, you, you get caught in a rut? No, never? Okay. <laughs> Where do those ruts come from? Well, it's actually old like oil tankers and logging trucks driving down the highway in that exact same spot over and over and over again until the, the pavement actually gets carved out from the spot that they've traveled down over and over and over again. Now, when you're driving down the highway and you get caught in one of those ruts, if you try really hard, you can get out of it, but it's much easier. Your car naturally wants to to stay in the course that's already been traveled down. It's easier to stay in the rut. That's exactly how a neural pathway works. Neural pathways are our go-to thoughts. When you think a thought over and over and over again, it actually carves a trench in your brain that it makes it easier and easier and easier to think that thought over and over and over again. 
Now, the negative side of that is if you've been believing lies, if you've been thinking negative thoughts over and over and over again, if you've been dwelling on what's not true, your brain actually starts to believe that it is. That actually becomes the easiest place to go to in your mind. And you can actually think a lie so many times that it becomes a reality for you. But on the other hand, the positive side of that is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can replace those old neural pathways with new neural pathways. That we can make the truth that we find in Scripture our go-to thought. That we can actually go through the process of dwelling on the truth so much that that becomes where we go. That becomes where our brain goes to. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up at this time. You know, I've, been, I've really been wrestling with this this week. Uh, preachers will often say, you know, I'm preaching to myself, not to you, and I, I, I very much feel that. This is not something that happens overnight. If you're listening to this going, yeah, I'm really not there, <laughs> join the club. But the beautiful thing is that transformation is possible. The beautiful thing is that Sanctification is a process. The beautiful thing is that God isn't wanting us to already be there. He wants to come and walk with us on that journey of transformation. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible to have our minds renewed and to have our lives changed. So I want to ask you, what do you find yourself thinking about through the course of the day? Are your thoughts typically more on the negative end or more on the positive end? Do they lead you to becoming more loving and humble or more fearful and selfish? What are the lies that pop into your head? We've all got them. What are the ruts that you've been stuck in that are actually holding you back from everything that God has for you? As we sing this last song and as you go throughout your week, I really want to encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you, to remind you of truth, to acknowledge the strongholds and the lies that you may be believing, but to actually fight them with the truth. Some great places to start, if you're looking for some verses to go to, would be Romans 8.39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Deuteronomy 31.8, which says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or Ephesians 1.4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I thank you that we don't have to be stuck in those ruts anymore, that you actually want to do a work here tonight to free us from the strongholds, to free us from the lies that we've been believing all of our life, that the world around us has taught us to believe. So in Jesus' name, I pray that minds would be renewed tonight, that hearts would be set free, that you would actually 
do a work in this place tonight to set us free from the, the chains that have been holding us down, the lies that have been keeping us from being people of humility, from being people of love, from living in community, from investing in one another. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this place transformed and being transformed, walking in this life that you offer us freely. I thank you that you have the power to do it. In Jesus' name.